From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today we're continuing our series on the career of filmmaker Witt Stillman, director of movies like Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, and Love and Friendship. If you just make one film that people like, you can get offered potentially quite a few things because people say, oh, he did this decently, maybe he can do something else decently. But if you make two films that are sort of similar, it's like navigation. People put a line through the two dots and that line continues and they think, well, this guy's just going to do this. This is what he does. That condemned me to be just the Whitstone director who can do Whitstone projects and no others because when Barcelona came out, they saw, oh, he just does this. That's all he's going to do. In today's show, we explore the surprising success of Stillman's debut, Metropolitan, and the subsequent pressure to craft a career as Stillman moved into a world of bigger budgets and studio filmmaking. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. The 1990s saw a boom in independent filmmaking going mainstream in American cinema. Audiences found that the art house could merge with the multiplex, as filmmakers with distinct voices such as Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Alexander Payne, Nicole Holofcener, and many more were able to pull off an interesting paradox, making independent films mainstream and making them through traditional studios. Rather than describing the economics, independent often began to describe the aesthetic. These were the authentic voices in a sea of corporate sludge, bringing perspectives and styles that only they could. This very much includes the focus of our episode today with Stillman. Stillman came onto the scene right at the outset in 1990 with Metropolitan, a debut about debuts. Here's the trailer for Metropolitan. Tom is the only guy I've ever liked in my whole life. I'm not going to forget about him because of some apparent inconsistency. I've had a crush on Serena with some ups and downs for over two years. Serena had an incredible number of boyfriends, at least 20. Rip finds Monica and Serena Slocum still together. Well, one thing's for certain, she's lost her virginity by now. How can you say that? You're right. Maybe she wasn't a virgin. Is it true you're a baron? As a matter of fact, it is. I don't take that sort of thing seriously, though. Rick von Sloniker is tall, rich, good-looking, stupid, dishonest, conceited, in short, highly attractive to women. I don't see how that can be bad. I shouldn't have to go into all the sordid details. Well, could you go into a few sordid details? They're doomed. What are you talking about? Downward social mobility? They're bourgeois. (laughs) Playing strip poker with an exhibitionist somehow takes the challenge away. And in love. I mean, for them, men are either dates, potential dates, or date substitutes. I find that dehumanizing. They're all so very metropolitan. Metropolitan was made on a budget of a couple hundred thousand dollars, and few people, including its cast of unknowns, could have expected that it would go on to gross $7 million and earn its first-time filmmaker Witt Stillman an Oscar nomination for its screenplay. But more than finding success in a shifting cinematic landscape, Metropolitan became the template for what it means to say something is a Witt Stillman film. Like, to you, what is a a Witt Stillman movie? Um... (laughs) 
I talked with Taylor Nichols, who is part of the ensemble in Metropolitan and the star of Stillman's second film, Barcelona, about what we mean when we think of Stillman as a genre as much as a filmmaker. A Whit Stillman movie is, is a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants project where the main goal is to please wit. And that was a real lesson that I learned about filmmaking. And I think Wit does this brilliantly, not trying to please other people. He would sit by the monitor. And I think even on Metropolitan, we, we, we didn't have a monitor all that often. But he would sit by the monitor and just giggle. Um, I, th- I think that's a real lesson in, you know, don't worry about what other people want. Do what you think is right. And you may not have a super broad audience, but you will have an audience who gets the same thing you do. And I think that's ultimately what, what happened. I read that Lionel Trilling essay you mentioned. You really like Trilling? Yes. I think he's very strange. He says that nobody could like the heroine of Mansfield Park. I like her. Then he goes on and on about how we modern people of today with our modern attitudes bitterly resent Mansfield Park because its heroine is virtuous. What's wrong with a novel having a virtuous heroine? His point is that the novel's premise, that there's something immoral in a group of young people putting on a play, is simply absurd. You found Fanny Price unlikable? She sounds pretty unbearable, but I haven't read the book. What? You don't have to have read a book to have an opinion on it. I haven't read the Bible either. What Jane Austen novels have you read? None. I don't read novels. I prefer good literary criticism. That way you get both the novelist's idea as well as the critic's thinking. With fiction, I can never forget that none of it ever really happened, but it's all just made up by the author. So when Metropolitan did what it did, Stillman had some choices to make. A career, a voice, a style that could have looked like any number of projects. He could have become a director for hire, chasing studio fare and sequels. He could adapt a classic novel or a bestseller. Or he could continue to develop a project he'd started before Metropolitan. Ultimately, it looked like an extension of what had gotten him this far in a showcase for two of his Metropolitan actors, Taylor Nichols and Chris Eigeman. Here's the trailer for his second film, Barcelona. What exactly are you doing here? I'm sort of an advance man for the Sixth Fleet. That's going to be really tough. It's an assignment that will require a lot of diplomacy and tact. I'm really surprised he gave it to you. You can't say Americans are not more violent than other people. No. All those people killed in shootings in America? Oh, shootings. Yes, but that doesn't mean Americans are more violent than other people. We're just better shots. I think it's true that the height of the sexual revolution is over. I don't go to bed with just anyone anymore. I have to be attracted to them sexually. But I always thought that women had to have some kind of profound emotional bond with a man before they became interested in a relation of that kind. Oh, no. I don't think anti-Americanism is really all that significant a phenomenon. It's certainly nothing to take personally. But you seem very intelligent for an American. Well, I'm not. Have you ever heard of the Marquis de Sade? Ted's a great admirer of de Sade. You see that odd expression on his face? Under the apparently very normal clothes he's wearing are these narrow leather straps drawn taut so that when he dances... What? He's a complex and in some ways dangerous man. Just once, I'd like to go out with a girl not convinced I'm encased in black leather underwear. That bothers you?
Barcelona pushes Stillman into a more overtly political realm, and something often more broadly comedic as a common thread emerges. The struggle to preserve virtues in an increasingly barbarous world. Whereas in Metropolitan this manifests in a New York socialite milieu, Barcelona expands it into global politics. Fran Hopfner, who has written for the New York Times, Brightwall, Dark Room, Vulture, among others, spoke with me about this strand of small-c conservatism in Stillman's work. One of the things I noticed upon revisiting a lot of these films is I was stunned by the directness with which these characters speak, the way that they are completely unafraid to tell someone who is their friend or their roommate or their relative that they are awful or boorish or rude. Um, and even though they're doing it in a sort of mannered way, there there's definitely a brutality to their politeness. They, they may not be raising their voice or screaming, but I think these characters embody, a, I don't know, a type of viciousness that makes them really almost cathartic to watch. So I'm like, God, I wish I could get away with talking like that. And I probably could, but I, I don't have the, you know, the sensibility to do so. So one thing that's kind of interesting is Wit tries not to be overtly political in a lot of ways. Or when I talk to him, he sort of will acknowledge that there's politics often kind of on the outskirts of his projects. They're sort of there, but they're not overtly didactic sorts of movies. And so that what that's resulted in in some of the criticism is sometimes he is lauded as uh, an interesting progressive filmmaker chronicling these rich people. And other times, you know, the, the American conservative and National Review say he's one of the few American conservative auteurs. So I don't feel like we need to define him politically, but I wonder if there is a conservatism in his movies, not to say that these are like Republican type movies, but what, what do you make of the politics of Whit Stillman? I would agree that there's a conservatism, but I was looking specifically when rewatching a lot of these for like a capital C conservative mindset and found it really hard to pin down. I think in a lot of ways he's he's too slippery and he's too smart to really endorse or condemn these characters. I think a lot of these characters are not undone by their politics and their beliefs so much as they are their own foolishness and egos which I guess all feeds into this but I was thinking about a film like Barcelona I recently watched that was a new to me film and depending on my sort of peers who are wit fans that's either they think that's their favorite it's the funniest it's the most cutting towards this type of crowd or it's perhaps the most conservative and the most adoring and I found myself somewhere in the middle but I, I can't help but laugh at, you know, the repeated story in Barcelona of the American government blowing up the main and that debated fact throughout the whole of the film that these guys can't bear to accept or consider or even think about a historical event reinterpreted not by their own views and American imperialism. As far as Stillman's rise in the 90s, um, I often think about the way that he emerges out of some truly independent cinema in the 80s and then this kind of boom of auteurism in the 90s. Do you think that he emerged at the perfect time? Like, was the 90s the only time maybe when something like Metropolitan could land, become a big success and an Oscar nominee? Was there something unique about the 90s there? 
That's a good question. I've been also recently delving into 90s indie film and the 90s Sundance canon, which does feel like this unique moment in American art. Not unlike the 70s, but with a far different and I guess maybe much less more outwardly violent tone. I think the 90s sees the rise of some of like, I think the greatest screenwriters in American film. You have like your Nicole Holofceners coming to, coming to the stage, uh, as well as, you know, your Quentin Tarantino's and your Paul Thomas Anderson's. But I think there becomes this desire in in film at large to to step away maybe from like the bombastic spectacle that was defined by a lot of the 80s filmmaking there's perhaps a weariness for it um and in turn a discussion of the type of culture that paid for and produced and developed those projects. I, I, I think about sort of the brief allusion to Spider-Man in Last Days of Disco and whether or not writing Spider-Man is, is a respectable trade. And that feels to me like this, you know, response to a lot of the filmmaking that would come both before and after a film like that. Yeah, Witt is adamant that the only person he inspired was Noah Baumbach and everybody else was only working in the tradition of Tarantino, which I think is a little oversimplified, but what kind of influence would you yeah. say he did have or does have? You know, I come, I come out of Chicago where there's this huge hub of mumblecore, but to call Stillman an early mumblecore director um, feels like it's disregarding so much of his desire to really embody his version's his movies versions of spectacle these scenes with music or with crowds or with dancing or with costuming um i think some of the biggest influences that he would have in cinema now are no doubt like Baumbach and i think you know greta gerwig but i also think directors who really are motivated by a crisp coherent script. I guess I think of, you know, Lorene Scafaria and Kelly Freeman Craig. And, you know, a lot of these female auteurs were working from wordy texts um, and not making any attempt to simplify that text for the viewer, but instead granting them the, the gift, essentially, of letting them piece things together themselves. I think I feel a greater influence from Witt's work now that there's been some distance from it than maybe in the immediate aftermath. The politics of Barcelona is interesting. And I think there's maybe some disagreement over how political a movie it is or how politically people should take what's going on in it. Um, Hayden Guest in his Criterion booklet on Barcelona wrote, Stillman turns to comedy not as a debased, tired, or parodic form in need of reinvention, but as itself a means of sincere reconciliation and renewal, a philosophically grounded genre driven toward a Shakespearean restoration of order and community. And I, I wanted to get your impression on that. I mean, especially for a movie set uh, in the Cold War uh, comedy that's at least somewhat textually about American foreign policy. Are these things you're thinking about or is it more of just sort of what's an interesting twist, what's an interesting piece of tension uh, to get the movie going? I don't know. Um, 
it's sort of pretty elevated um, thinking. And that's what Criterion wanted, and that's what they got. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, Hayden's a great guy because um, he's taken, I mean, one of the real tough things in independent film is how do you pay for the storage of your materials so that, you know, the film survives and, um, you know, storage over years and years becomes really expensive. And um, he took our, our films into the Harvard film archive that he runs. And um, that, that is incredibly helpful. Um, I think it's fascinating what he says. I, I guess there's sort of, I mean, if you take the Shakespeare out, um, it, it, it is maybe a way of, of doing that. Although I, I, I haven't read that recently, so I'm not quite sure what it's all about. You said take the Shakespeare out. You're not a Shakespeare fan. I just don't know what you know. It, it, it sounds a little too highfalutin to talk about Shakespeare. In the conversation where we're talking about Lionel Trilling, is, is highfalutin something that uh, like you're you're not highfalutin enough? Is that really a concern? <laughs> Touche. I spoke with Witt Stillman about how his second film came to be and the way it established a signature style in an age of American auteurs. That's after this break. Welcome back to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. I'm talking with filmmaker Witt Stillman about the unlikely success of his debut film Metropolitan in 1990 and how its success factored into his decision to carry over a coherent style into his bigger-budget studio comedy Barcelona. Barcelona follows Ted Boynton, played by Taylor Nichols, as a stuffy Midwesterner abroad, working for a corporation in Spain and trying to navigate his career and love life, while his obnoxious cousin, the naval officer Fred Boynton, played by Chris Eigeman, comes for an extended visit. The ensuing plot is largely a comedy of manners, with dollops of geopolitics and terrorism. Here's a clip from Barcelona, in which Ted contemplates the romance of business. What made my isolation in Barcelona bearable was work for Smoke, the Illinois High Speed Motor Corporation. Like nearly everyone else, I had seen Arthur Miller's play, and as a youth had the usual sneering, deprecating attitude to the world of business and sales. All that changed senior year when the charismatic professor Woodward Thompson's business course convinced us that even the apparently mundane world of business had its romance. A job interview with his MoCo led to employment in his training program. We were supposed to rotate between departments, but I arrived in sales just as a flu epidemic struck and never left. In sales, I found not just a job, but a culture. Franklin, Emerson, Carnegie, and Betker were our philosophers. And thanks to the genius of Carnegie's theory of human relations, Many customers also became friends. I don't consider high-pressure sales sales at all. It's a form of fraud. In 
In true sales, you're providing a real and constructive service, helping people make their lives more agreeable or their companies more efficient. And in so doing, creating wonderful economies of scale from which everyone and the whole economy benefit. I spoke with Stillman about what the aftermath of Metropolitan was and how he settled on this perhaps unexpected direction for his follow-up. Since this movie did go on to become nominated for the Oscar, and I don't know exactly the process for that. I gather there's maybe some paperwork you had to do, but what was that like? What was the process of your movie that you had to sort of will into existence becoming Oscar nominated? That was a crazy thing. I mean, one of the things about it, I had to sort of calm myself down a bit because I had always hated the Oscars. I just thought the whole thing was terrible and sneered at them. And uh, I, I think I particularly hated them because I'd always be doing my taxes at the deadline. In the old days, <laughs> the Oscars were sort of April 14th. And I'd be there hating all these people who got to make movies and I didn't. And, you know, just hating the whole phoniness of it all and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then I, I was about to take my kids to school and we had all our coats on and and watched and and it was it was just fantastic and i think one of the greatest events i've been to is something they call the nominees luncheon which is the most fun part of getting nominated then of course we didn't win but that's sort of a prestige thing oh it's good to be nominated and not win so did, did that change your oscar habits i mean have you have you let go of the resentment of that the taxes well, related to how how sort of subjective these things are it's like people who hate some snotty club but when they get in say well the people are actually quite nice and you know it serves its function you can play tennis here or whatever um so it's it's the you know the outsider hating something and uh, then oh you let me in okay it's not that bad i don't know yeah i i, I sort of have, i have a lot of problems with that organization um and and the obsession with awards and and the idea that now films are being sort of made and distributed just because maybe they would be an award winner. And uh, I like the idea that you vote for films you've gone in your own steam to see on screen. So, you know, I go out and see uh, Elvis and Top Gun and all these things and some smaller films. And I like to vote for those and not do this whole awards season thing where they it's pretty corrupt, actually. You know, it's who's going to spend a lot of money on parties for films and that kind of stuff. It's funny as you describe this because it's sort of the Tom Townsend story. You're the outsider yeah. judging it. And then, uh, yeah. oh, it's actually kind of cool, though, even if it is corrupt. Yeah, but it ends. <laughs> it doesn't last. It ends. Well, that happens for Tom, too. The week's over. Orgy week's over. That's what I mean. <laughs> exactly. Orgy week's definitely over. I mean, I actually got to have Orgy week twice because um, I got to have two Cinderella films because um, – because Love and Friendship also popped the way Metropolitan did in, in a certain way. Anyway, we'll go back to Metropolitan. I was just going to say uh, it must have been quite the vindication, though, uh, to have this to have made this movie with uh, a lot of sort of like willing into, into existence, having to figure it out in the moment, hoping that it's going to work. And then it's profitable. It gets nominated for an Oscar. And then you sort of get this point where you, I imagine, get to decide what kind of film career you want to craft next. And so, you know, I, I imagine there were offers in the sense that maybe you could start to direct other people's projects. Maybe you could develop other ones. Maybe you could get a, I don't know, Batman, James Bond movie or something. But uh, you did continue on this semi-autobiographical, unmistakably with Stillman trajectory with Barcelona and eventually Last Days of Disco. So how, how did you navigate that choice from a career level? 
Well, not very well, evidently. But um, <laughs> uh, now that I think of it, there were sort of two moments of decision, I'd say. Um, because if you just make one film that people like, you can get offered potentially quite a few things because people say, oh, he did this decently. Maybe he can do something else decently. But if you make two films that are sort of similar, it's like navigation. People put a line through the two dots and that line continues. And they think, well, this guy's just going to do this. This is what he does. And the two opportunities I had to sort of change my trajectory were before the second film came out. So I was put up for a Meg Ryan vehicle called Addicted to Love. I was sort of, I had been blocked on the Barcelona script, but the clock was ticking. Pastor Rock wanted me to do the Barcelona project. I had sort of had backing. I became unblocked on the Barcelona script, and I had all this backing. And I went ahead and did Barcelona, didn't do Addicted to Love, which a really great guy did, um, Griffin Dunn, who's, who's a terrific fellow. And um, then I was in the editing room on Barcelona, absolutely loving the disco scenes we shot with the beautiful actresses and thinking, oh gosh, what a great idea it would be to, to do a disco film, the last days of disco with beautiful young women in, in discotheques. Like how cinematic can that be? That, that just would be great. So I was really excited about that idea. And um, a producer, Lindsay Duran, who had worked at Castle Rock, the production company behind um, Barcelona. This holiday season, she offered me Sense and Sensibility. She showed me this, the, an early script of Sense and Sensibility. Kate Winslet and Hugh Grant. Sense and Sensibility. And my theory in those days was that Jane Austen was so great that her books could be made into good movies by competent directors who are not writers. And I read the script and it was really missing sort of the super dramatic part at the start where we see her predicament. So I, I read, you know, the novel again and read the script and I, I felt I was committed to the disco. And, and I mentioned to them that I thought that it was lacking the dramatic predicament. And so when I was, went to see the um, Ang Lee film, I was sort of ambivalent, like, do I want to hate this or do I want to like it? <laughs> I went in, I just loved loved what they did since the sense that it was such a good job and i felt sort of badly not to have been involved but saw that the other people did such a good job and i mentioned it to lindsay duran or someone afterwards and they said oh actually we did take your notes we actually did change the script to put in the the sad predicament these two sisters were put into so i did feel i had a tiny contribution to that but probably lots of other people gave them the same note but I think that was a wonderful job. And I think it's the, the writer who knew the material, who's really dedicated to the material and a really good director who's bringing sort of the visual side to it. And, um, and it was a great, great combination. That condemned me to be just the Whitstone director who can do Whitstone projects and no others because when Barcelona came out, they saw, oh, he just does this. That's all he's going to do. And I think Love and Friendship gave me a chance to slightly expand I guess both damsels and love, ex love and friendship expand a little bit that idea, but the first three films are, are quite similar. It seems like it's a kind of negotiation that a lot of filmmakers in the 90s in particular had to make, which is 
it's alluring to say, you know, it is written, directed, produced by, to have that authorial vision. I think we're back to kind of what the, whatever shadow of the auteur theory was existed or reconstructed in the 90s, where filmmakers wanted to have that imprint over all of the elements. Uh, and it felt like there was maybe something virtuous about that as opposed to jumping onto an adaptation or taking somebody else's work. It never was totally cohesive. But were, were you, I mean, was the allure of written, produced and directed by Witt Stillman something that you uh, were thinking about? Oh, not at all. I mean, there's no allure to it. I would have much preferred just being directing. I only wrote a script because I couldn't get a script from anyone else. And I had to do it on my own because no one would, no insane would hire me. Um, so we had um, 50000 from a real estate operation. And one of the Spanish filmmakers I liked said his actual cash budget was 50000 So it was just the fact that if I was going to make a film i had to do it that way it wasn't something i wanted and um it says produced by but really they're competent producers who work on the film while it's being shot and doing all the real work it's just that in low budget you sort of can't have overhead you can't have staff and so before a film is financed i am doing a lot of the stuff and then after everyone has left and gone on to other projects. I'm left to pick up the pieces as best I can and, you know, defend the films. Uh, But I'm not really a producer. To further contextualize the so-called auteur, the director is author. Here is Girish Shambu, author of The New Cinephilia, on the specific conditions that led to the particular American independent movement of 90s cinema that Stillman emerges from. So auteur, um, auteurism... Uh, it's basically a way of um, looking at films, reading films, appreciating films through a specific lens, which is through the lens of the director of the film, usually. And that's the that's the auteur. There's so many different ways in which we can appreciate movies. But this is just sort of one specific one specific way of appreciating films, analyzing films, etc. Um, the American auteur during New Hollywood. And now we're talking about the early 1970s, this big flowering of cinema, uh, American cinema with directors like um, Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and Robert Altman and Steven Spielberg all making their first films around the same time. So it was, it was a great kind of fertile uh, breeding ground for talent, uh, great American directors. And if we were to contrast that with the present moment. Uh, There are, in the present moment, lots of auteurs on the American film landscape. So it's it's a very rich time uh, for auteurs now as well. So people like, you know, Scorsese, of course, who's still making films, um, Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson, Spike Lee, Todd Haynes, Richard Linklater, David Lynch. There's so many auteurs um, in the American film industry, you know, working uh, at, at the current moment. Um, but I would say a couple of um, key differences would be right now is for me, especially um, it's a particularly rich time for women auteurs in a way that it wasn't in the early 1970s. The early 70s were was mostly white, mostly male. Uh, so somebody like Elaine May would have been the exception at the time. But now today we find a number of excellent filmmakers. In fact, some of the best films being made in America today, I think, are being made by women. So people like Kelly Reichardt, who's made a bunch of films with Michelle Williams. Uh, The latest one is Showing Up. Um, And other films like Wendy and Lucy and Meek's Cut Off. 
Um, and other directors like her would be uh, Deborah Gronick, who made Winter's Bone, which was Jennifer Lawrence's breakthrough film. Uh, Leave No Trace is another great film by Deborah Gronick. And other filmmakers like Chloe Zhao and Mariella Heller, and also documentary filmmakers uh, who are incredible, like world-class documentary filmmakers like Laura Poitras and Kirsten Johnson, um, Ava DuVernay, who's uh, another wonderful filmmaker. So this is a great time for women auteurs in a way that it wasn't in the 1970s. I think two dimensions uh, to the auteur right now are there's the artistic one, which is filmmakers with these strong voices. But then the other one is kind of the economic one. And it puts the auteur almost more like a brand, right? Like we saw Quentin Tarantino uh, in the 90s Miramax boom of auteurs kind of as their own brands, that will sell the movie the same way a movie star as an actor might sell the movie. Do you think that there was kind of a, a, a distinction then between, like I think about 90s cinema as being a tour based but different from some of the more art house auteur or the new Hollywood. Do you think the 90s was kind of its own unique time as far as the American auteur goes? The 90s was a distinct time that was different, uh, and yet um, it kind of built upon the success of the 1970s, like Tarantino for himself. Uh, Tarantino, for example, uh, is a great fan of Jean-Luc Godard and these French New Wave filmmakers. And a lot of the 1970s filmmakers were also very much influenced by the French New Wave. So I see a lot of continuities between the 70s and the 90s, al although uh, definitely the 90s um, had its had its own thing going on. Although to uh, go back to your original point about uh, artistic, um, the artistic qualities and the relationship to economics, they've often gone hand in hand. So Hollywood, for example, has used um, a director's you know artistic talent, merit, uh, creations, and has has kind of tried to seize upon them to try and create a brand out of it, and then. Um, you know, market that person aggressively. So, you know, filmmakers like Tarantino also became economically successful because their their art kind of went hand in hand with economics. Of course, this didn't happen to all filmmakers equally. There were other filmmakers like uh, from the 90s, like Hal Hartley, for instance, a very talented filmmaker who wasn't kind of, who, who didn't rise economically to the levels of someone like Tarantino. Um, because he wanted to kind of retain his independence and maybe he wasn't a mass taste. But I see a lot of continuities between the 70s and the 90s, but also the 90s being its own landscape. After the break, I'm talking with writer, director, and producer Whit Stillman about his career, legacy, aspirations, and regrets. We'll discuss the legacy of his second film, Barcelona, and his foray into network television with the sharp left turn in directing an episode of Homicide, Life on the Street. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. 
Whit Stillman is a filmmaker who made a big splash in the 1990s with comedies of manners like Metropolitan, Barcelona, and The Last Days of Disco. The style across all three, sometimes called the doomed bourgeoisie and love trilogy, is witty, smart, and warm. A unique combination with a distinctive voice. Here's a clip from 1994's Barcelona, which follows stuffy Midwesterner abroad Ted Boynton, played by Taylor Nichols, who confronts his cousin Fred, played by Chris Eigeman, about rumors Fred has made a habit of spreading. Just once I'd like to go out with a girl not convinced I'm encased in black leather underwear. That bothers you? The exact same story over and over again? Well, it's not exactly the same. I always vary it a little. Great. Wasn't even Aurora, but this terrific friend of hers from the trade fair. She's never met you, but was still full of your stupid stories. Frankly, I don't care for your tone. You should get down on your knees and thank God that you have a cousin who makes up interesting stories about you. I'm the best PR guy you're ever going to have. Do you think any even mildly cool trade fair girl would give you the time of day if she knew the pathetic Bible-dancing goody-goody you really are? You are far weirder than someone merely into S&M. At least they have a tradition. We have some idea what S&M is about. There's movies and books about it. But so far as I know, there is nothing to explain the way you are. I spoke with Nichols about his theory of how the film depicts two sides of Stillman. Witt Stillman is somebody who loved to revisit those characters or kind of variations of characters at times. Sometimes you're literally playing two different characters from previous movies, like in the last days of disco, which uh, the fact that you have two cameos of characters you've played before, both in these just sort of little bit parts. I don't know if anyone had done that cinematically before. Um, that must have been kind of odd. Yeah, I, I don't know either. And I, I, I thought you were going to say that, that we were playing, you know, both sides of, of Wit. And I think that that's also true, that Witt has this sort of arrogance that Chris brings to the screen, but he also has this insecurity, I think, that I do. And not only insecurity, but innocence and earnestness. Witt's a good friend. And, and we've become friends over the past 30 years. And, you know, and I think oftentimes Chris and I do play both sides of, of Witt. Witt talked to me about not caring so much about being an auteur in the sense that he had to make a, a typecast almost for himself, a brand of himself, even though I think to some extent that is what happens, right? Because Barcelona is an extension of a lot of what was going on in Metropolitan and then Disco as well. And so I think it's right. in, it's interesting because for you then when Barcelona happens, there's kind of this this almost family that's being formed, it seems like, between uh, – the, the cast, the crew, you and Eigenman kind of get this huge showcase in Barcelona, but it's a much bigger project. So what was it like to jump to that bigger tapestry? That was nerve wracking. There had been about a three year or two and a half year layoff between Metropolitan and, and Barcelona. And Chris and I both had started to work a little bit. And um, I, I'm very grateful for Wit that he stuck to his guns and his idea of using Chris and me because he told us about Barcelona early on. And so we kind of had this, this project on the horizon of, you know, going to Barcelona. And I had never been to Spain. In fact, I don't think I'd even ever been to Europe at that point. Um, no, that's, that's not totally true. I guess I've been there once, but... Um, but now sort of being the focus point of the film was was nerve wracking. And um, I think Wit was a little bit nervous, too. I think the, the second film pressure and working in a foreign country. Um, and again, I'm not sure that I understood all of the humor at the time of Barcelona. And again, I think that plays 
to the film's strength that we took it very, very seriously. It's funny, I was just listening to an interview with Chris Eigenman earlier today, and he said that one thing he brought to these early movies was that he always knew where the joke was in every line. And it's funny to hear you say, we weren't always sure where the joke was. And I'm, now I'm wondering yeah. if maybe that's why the sometimes conflict and the disparate energies between those characters, maybe that's part of how that chemistry clicked. I, I think that's totally true. Um, Chris and I, I think, work together like oil and water in a very positive way. You know, we we sort of don't mix. And the fact that we don't mix is, I think, what brings us together, almost like brothers or, you know, as in Barcelona's case, cousins. And I spoke with Stillman himself about what led him from a comedy of manners to a comedy of foreign policy. The idea for um, for Barcelona was when I was selling Spanish films, my wife and I saw the film Officer and a Gentleman. And we really liked it. And the film was pretty popular in the United States. And it wasn't really controversial. It wasn't considered like political or anything. I went to Madrid to see the uh, directors whose films I was selling. And I mentioned the film and they said, oh, the terrible film, it's it's facha, it's fascist. And I said, why is Officer and Gentleman fascist? Because it's glorifying the military, it's facha. And so I was thinking that, whoa, why not do a story about two cousins in Barcelona? One is an officer, the other is a gentleman. And the Spanish are all, all going to be around calling them facha, calling them fascists. And so that's where that started. One thing that's interesting is uh, there's a lot of, or at least a handful of NATO jokes, OTAN jokes in Barcelona, um, which one might think there was maybe a point um, when I first watched these movies, I, I, I guess I wasn't sure how relevant those would be. But NATO's pretty commonly in the news these days. It is commonly discussed and it probably helps Barcelona continue to seem relevant, even though it was sort of a just barely a period piece when you made it. Do you worry about or think about the relevance of your movies for decades, generations to come? Well, I'm frustrated that in the new Warner Brothers, they're not exploiting all the films they have. Um, So thanks to Criterion, it's possible to see Metropolitan in various ways. Um, but Warner's has, through Castle Rock, Rob Reiner's company, Warner's has um, Barcelona, and they're not doing anything with it, really, that I can see. And it's 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 it's, it's too bad, and because it's a super relevant film in the past uh, two years, it really would be good to have it out. And and um, I, I've been meaning to try to shake the tree to get them to um, do something with it. I don't know. It's probably not something you were thinking that, oh, this a lot of this will come back. A lot of this will be relevant. Uh, when, like when you make Barcelona, uh, there's maybe even a hope <laughs> that some of the elements would not be as relevant in the future. But uh, it's interesting how the movies play in different times and what they mean and how the context of now sort of shifts some of that meaning for people who are maybe just experiencing it for the first time. I mean, I think when I was writing it, I assumed it would be relevant forever because I thought the Cold War would go on forever um, when I started writing it. Um, but in the course of writing it, when I was working on it, there was the um, the Yeltsin um, counter coup. Um, I mean, it's the, 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 the Moscow, Mos- Moscow liberating itself um, in 1991, which I think was when I was writing it. Um, and um, I remember, you know, watching all those events from a house on the Costa Brava where my parents-in-law had a house um, and really excited about um, the Iron Curtain falling and and, um, democracy 
hopefully arriving in Russia. It brings up a question that I think is interesting, which is your your movies tend to be adjacently political. They're not didactic. Uh, the politics or something, I don't know that you have to overtly engage in to be engaged in the story. But are you trying to and are you actively thinking about that? Are the politics important in the construction of these movies? Well, I think you want to get away from the politics ultimately. So it can be sort of the matter. It can be sort of the um, the sand and the oyster or whatever that is generating some of the material. But I think you want to be really fair with the politics and um, have the sort of situations and characters ridiculous enough so that it's not um, propaganda. Um, Barcelona is the most political one. Maybe that's why Warner doesn't push it. But I don't think... I think we were pretty lucky with Barcelona that um, in North America it was well received. Um, North America, and I guess in Anglo, in the Anglo world, but it did well in England too. It didn't play well in um, Europe, and I think it was not the European point of view. It was sort of a not a congenial point of view for for most Europeans. And um, and it's the film I would do differently from my life experience. I mean, the other films, pretty much my point of view, but I would change the point of view in Barcelona if I were doing it again, because I've lived over there in a different way. When I was writing Barcelona, I was sort of the, you know, new American husband brought over into a European world. While since then, I've lived there so long um, that I can see the European point of view to a lot of things a lot more than I did then. Even when we were doing the Spanish dub version of Barcelona, we balanced out some of the jokes to make them more Spanish jokes as well as American jokes, which is something that really pleased me. And and it was interesting to see the reaction to the film in its Spanish version and its Catalan version, because the Catalan version didn't have that refinement. And so, so Barcelona is well received um, when it played on um, Spanish TV, but not in Barcelona, not in Catalonia. You go when you're supposed to go, and everything else is homicide. For a filmmaker who I've diagnosed as having coherent thematic preoccupations matched by a consistent aesthetic, it's quite the curveball to try to fit the episode of Homicide, Life on the Street, into a filmography of politeness. Homicide followed the brutal work of Baltimore detectives, drawing from the book by David Simon, who would continue exploring this subject matter years later in the HBO series The Wire. Stillman directed an episode in season five called The Heart of a Saturday Night, and he brought along Chris Eigeman for the ride. Here's a clip. I don't know what to say. You could start with your name. Jude Silvio. My mother was a Beatles fan. I don't follow Hey, Jew, don't be afraid. Take a sad song. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to, Mr. Silvio. I thought I was losing my mind. I got scared. That's why I came here. Maybe the simplest thing would be to tell us what happened. My wife was taking my daughter home. Sure. Would you like to tell us what happened? 
my husband went out for a drink. Our daughter Lila admit this jerk at the convenience store not too far from where we live. She used to go there to, to hang out, to see her friends. She was looking for trouble and she found it. I asked Stillman about this somewhat jarring entry in his otherwise light, funny body of work. I believe it was between Barcelona and Last Days of Disco. You did branch out in a, a way that probably was not particularly expected among Whit Stillman fans, which is you directed an episode of Homicide, Life on the Street. Um, and it's it's kind of funny to see just knowing uh, the film grammar and the tones and the politeness, I guess, that we've sort of talked about so far. When you watch that episode, I think the camera literally pans up from this bloody corpse and it says directed by Whit Stillman, which is just not what you expect necessarily. But I'm curious, what was that like to veer so far away from the tone of the movies you've been making to direct this? And you brought Eigenman with you. Well, it was a great experience. I loved it, and I would have loved to have directed more TV, but situations have not been favorable. So it was a very um, good show. It had a lot of good people involved in it. There was a writer who sadly died young named Henry Brummel, um, who wrote a really beautiful script that is sort of more talky and reflective. It's about people mourning a group of murders and one of the great things you do in directing tv in this case is i got to cast a lot of parts so i got to cast polly holiday um i brought chris argument in there's a wonderful older um man from washington who came in and rosanna arquette did her first uh tv appearance um and um and then I got to work with that veteran cast. So it was a terrific experience. And I had a good time in the editing room with uh, the editor, Jay Perez, um, and um, hired him to, to edit um, uh, Last Days of Disco, which he ended up doing uh, with Andy Hafetz as co-editors. It's a, it's a bleak episode. Uh, can a show like that be polite in the way that I think I understand your mission of art to continue to be polite and uh... – Virtuous? No, my mission art is not to be polite. That isn't it. Okay. Uh, and I've actually never seen that in the thing. I, I don't like vulgarity, um, but it's not to be polite. Um, I, I, I pre- appreciate politeness, and not that I'm a very polite person, but there was a conflict in that shoot. I thought Henry Bremel did a really good script, and and um, we cast um, Chris Argument and, and, and these other people, and... Um, at some point, um, the showrunner came in and rewrote the script, making the yuppie Chris Eigenman character really bad people. And it was kind of this thing of, oh, we're going to take the two men and make them really bad guys. And, and I was astonished. And um, I would say ideologically, I don't like seeing preppies or yuppies maligned in a stupid untrue way and i put chris eigenman who's sort of the sort of mascot of our films in this and they wrote this ridiculous rewrite very melodramatic and and kind of completely illogical because this guy is mourning the death of his wife and worrying about the kidnapping of his child and just bizarrely goes off into this obnoxious direction and the other white male also and 
I thought it was pretty horrendous and um, it's pretty bad. And um, they were all sort of turned into Rick von Sloniger's. Um And I questioned this and there's a very temperamental um, kind of crazy, kind of drunken um, producer on it. And um, he really got upset when I thought that, you know, the script should be restored and, and something should be changed. And he said, well, we don't have time to worry about that. And I said, well, I can, I can work on it. You know, I, I write too. <laughs> and I think I made the mistake of saying I was nominated for, for screenplay. <laughs> um, oh, this guy got so mad when I said that. And so I didn't direct any of those New York shows, the Dick Wolf shows or the uh, Baltimore shows after that, because I questioned the script question the rewriting and directors tv directors are not supposed to do that that's what i assume Whit Stillman found himself moving onward and upward, having written and directed two successful films, one explicitly independent and the other fitting into the new brand of american independent cinema he flexed his muscles by directing an episode of a popular procedural show, and next he would take on his biggest budget yet in the conclusion of his so-called doomed bourgeoisie and love trilogy, The Last Days of Disco, a now-beloved movie that led to 12 years of what he appropriately calls development heck. That's next time on The Entertainment. I don't know, I'm not really a disco type. I probably wouldn't get in anyway. Of course you'll get in. Holly's gorgeous. This country was a dancing wasteland. You know the Woodstock generation of the 1960s that were so full of themselves and conceited? None of those people could dance. I don't care. I don't want that element in the club. Okay, I work in advertising. Is that a crime? What's happening in this country? I have a very bad feeling about the clubs. It's like a meteorite is headed straight for it. It's going to destroy everything. Yeah, well, I don't think it'll be a meteorite. The Entertainment is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. It is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from Metropolitan, Barcelona, Pulp Fiction, Sense and Sensibility, Homicide, Life on the Street, and The Last Days of Disco. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.